Welcome back. I am Kristen Bry. He is Dusty Weiss, my co-host for today. And our next guest published a two-part story earlier this month that reported on the death of a baby girl just 30 hours after she was born, her parents' inability to get answers from the hospital, and what their story exposes about Wisconsin medical malpractice caps. Jessica Van Egren is a health reporter with the Journal Sentinel. Thanks for joining us in person, Jessica. Thanks for having me. So I want to be able to get there's so much to this story, and we mm-hmm. don't have a lot of time with you, so I want to be able to get as much in as we can. So let's just start. Can you summarize the story with baby um, Ameliana um, um, and her parents and what happened with them when she was born? Sure. So, yeah, that's a tough task. <laughs> just sum, sum it up quickly. But um, long story short, I think um, they arrived at Columbia St. Mary's on September 18th. Um, the mom, Karen, was considered high risk because of her age um, and because she had she's uh, um, anemic. Um, so, I mean, right away, I think that more flags should have been raised. But essentially, the baby was born. Um, she had poop before, um, you know, she was born. Which, so that, until yeah. I was pregnant, I didn't realize that happens, that babies sometimes yeah. poop for the first time it's, when they're still in the womb. It is not like a, a very ab- I mean, it. It happens. It's not a super abnormal thing. So anyways, she pooped sometime in utero utero or in the birthing channel. Um, She came out. She still had the meconium in her lungs. Uh, She developed a secondary condition, um, but both together caused respiratory issues. She was having difficulty breathing, transferred to the NICU, um, put, you know, on a ventilator, given certain things. An attorney that reviewed the case didn't think that standards of care were met. So some things that could have been done for her weren't done for her. Um, and then uh, what, whatever it was, 30 hours later, um, she was pronounced dead in her mother's arms. There were essentially things that could have been done to intervene that uh, a doctor uh, and, and a lawyer who reviewed the case mm-hmm. and is expert in these things think should have been done uh, but weren't. Uh, exactly. There were certain procedures that they could have done. And then at some point when things started to go off the rails, they think that baby Emiliana should have been transferred to uh, Children's Hospital, which is better equipped with more equipment and specialized equipment in the NICU to Correct. take care of her. Yep. Do we know why those steps weren't taken? We don't. Um and I guess that's part of the story that remains to be seen. And we did have all the, the medical records. So, I mean, everything that's in the story is from the medical records and from experts that I feel fortunate that I was able to track down that agreed to look at the records and then comment on what they felt was wrong. But you're right. I mean, when a, when a child has respiratory issues, there's like, you know, a standard of care. There's like a package of things that can be done to help them. And some of these things were done. She was put on a ventilator. She was given, a, um, I don't know if drug's the right word, but surfactant. It helps loosen up things in her lungs. Um, she was put on a feeding tube. These are all good things. These are all things that should happen, and they did happen. But I think where the the attorney and his expert and the other experts that reviewed the records where they say that the hospital failed in this standard of care were two key parts of that standard, which were the inhaled nitric oxide 
and high flow oscillatory ventilation. So that's a different type of ventilation than just a standard vent- ventilation. It um, It's easier on a newborn's lungs. It kind of shakes them. The way the nurses I talked to described it, if you're holding the child and it's on this <clears throat> sort of ventilation, it's, it's just like a constant shaking. Hmm. But for some reason, that shaking is gentler on them. Um, and that's why the attorney in that one quote in the story, he said, it's like they're practicing medicine from the 1980s over there because you know because i kept driving in on how easy is this stuff to get like is this really that standard are we talking about something that is exceptional that's only at children's that's only at children's and everyone was like no like this if you have it why wouldn't you use it right off the bat like why weren't you just put on this immediately and and those are the questions that i sent to the hospital obviously and never got a response to but you know his quote derives from that and then of course that sounds so inflammatory that really like the 1980s so i would take that you know that's why i really wanted to drive back and get other experts besides the attorney's experts so we're left in a position now where we have to theorize why this child didn't get the level of care to which she should have been entitled and and i think we'll drive down on that a little bit harder here but first you mentioned that the hospital was not responsive to your Mm. concerns as a former journalist myself i can say uh been there um done that they cited hipaa um Mm. as a reason for not responding to your requests do you find that very often hospitals when they don't want to be held accountable just say oh it's hipaa we can't talk because hipaa um, I think that it's a first go-to response. It's legitimate. It's people's health care records. And, you know, if I'm a reporter and I want to write about any of this, you have to get the family to either sign over the records to you or just hand them to you, you know, share them with you. But the workaround that came up in this story that our attorney for the newspaper recommended was for me to ask the hospital for a different form which would allow them to talk about the family situation. And that had to be signed by the parents. Which you did get. Correct. And they still didn't answer your questions. Correct. Well, and they part of the story is also they didn't answer the questions that the family and the parents had themselves. But we have to take a break really quickly. Okay. When we come back, I want to get to what I think is everyone should be aware of, which is the malpractice medical malpractice caps and what recourse the family does not have. And so our guest is Jessica Van Egren, who is a health reporter for Journal Sentinel. He is Dusty Weiss. I am Kristen Bry, and this is Spanning the State. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry. He is Dusty Weiss, and we're talking to Jessica Van Egren, who's a health reporter with the Journal Sentinel, about her two-part piece published earlier this month about a baby who was born with a treatable condition and still died 30, about 30 hours after being born and what that exposed around medical malpractice in Wisconsin and what recourse families have when something like this happens in hospitals. And so as far as the unfortunate tragedy died, then mm-hmm. the baby died, there was not a lot of response Mm-mm. from the hospital to the parents. Correct. And so they started to try to find a legal route for mm-hmm. recourse, right? Yep. So um, they've been denied, I think, seven or eight times. And I think part of that was like the dribbling out of medical records from the hospital. You know, if you call an attorney with 19 pages of medical records, chances are not much is going to happen. 
in addition to the caps. So, so that's I mean, what I want to talk about. Is, the caps is the problem. Did you it, know about the caps before you found this story? I think maybe I had heard it during my days covering the Capitol, but it, not not really. Um, actually, my coworker did a huge piece series on the caps in 2014, and I cited that in my article. And essentially, what has happened is the injured patients' compensation fund has grown to over a billion dollars, and so the fund has continued to grow, and the number of medical malpractice cases has continued to decrease. But so let's explain why. Yeah. So the um, I think what's important to understand is that if you are if you die as a result of medical malpractice in the state of Wisconsin, you're essentially not going to find. It's going to be extremely difficult to find an attorney. The first, and if you're an adult who passes a, who who dies as a result of medical malpractice the cap is $350,000 if you're if the if a child under 18 dies as a result of medical malpractice it's half a million so these are caps that were instituted by the state legislature uh, a while ago, right? I think so. Yeah. I'm not quite sure on the dates, but these have been longstanding. So if you take the rundown that the attorney in my, I quote an attorney from Baltimore, who is the one that found there was medical ne- negligence, found the standards of care were not met, but then his firm found out about the medical malpractice cap in Wisconsin because Maryland does not have such a cap. And that's when they were like, you have a case, your baby is dead, but no one is ever going to take this case because to bring it to trial requires experts, $80,000 on the get-go, and then whatever money you get is essentially split between the law firm and the parents. And while it might sound like a lot to get $200,000 as an attorney from a case, that's not a lot. So, you know, take that example and put it to if you're an adult, who who dies as the result of medical malpractice? You're working with a three hundred and fifty thousand dollar cap, which is even less. It's, which is even less, and so even more so. So that's when we talk about the the fund that's grown, the the cases that have dropped. Yes, it's not because it's not because this fund, is, it's this not necessarily because sourced. care is getting better. It's yeah. because. No one will take these cases. This fund I is something that doctors pay into as a part of their is. medical malpractice insurance. It is, and exactly. And if the fund isn't paying out to malpractice cases, it just gets bigger and bigger. Yes. And I want to read you, um, I won't tell you who sent me this email after the story published, but it is an attorney in Wisconsin. And it speaks to exactly what you just said. So he said, those of us approaching retirement are told that if you keep your redra- withdrawals to 4%, you will only ever, you know, tap the gains on your savings. So if you're just, you know, if you're just pulling 4% off the savings of that account, you're going to be fine. So if you apply that to the $1 billion in the fund, the fund could reliably disperse $4 million annually to patients and, stay, and stay afloat. And the, the last cap I think is crucial to talk about is the $750,000 cap. So that is for... Non-economic damages, so like pain and suffering, loss of companionship, that's the one that has been challenged in court as unconstitutional. So economic damages in the state can be as high as anything. So if I survive, but I'm like paralyzed, I can no longer work, that's an economic damage. That can A jury can award anything for that, but if you, if, but if you, if you die, it's a different story. 
Right. We're talking about this because of the tragedy endured by one Milwaukee family and the loss Mm -hmm. of their child. And I I certainly think that um, when these medical malpractice caps were passed, it was passed under the auspices of we need these caps in place to keep medical costs from rising out of control. Mm Mm-hmm. We're in a position where lawyers won't take these medical malpractice cases because there's not enough money in it for them. Correct. And at the end of the day, it seems like all of these problems, the, the problems endured by this family, uh, the problems of not being able to get anybody to take their case, all source back to the fact that money is involved. And mm-hmm. so with the time that we have left here, I just want to ask is what can we do about it other than taking money out of the healthcare system? Uh, well, <laughs> can you answer that in one minute? <laughs> I, I don't know, but I can try. Um, I think we can all do better. I think what this story highlights is that there are flaws on every level here. That's why the story was split in two. There's flaws at the point of care that impacted this child's life and there was flaws in the in the um in the legal system that is preventing them from getting any justice and so you know the only thing that could change the legal system is laws the only thing that can change the system is an attorney taking the case and arguably um fighting and saying they're unconstitutional Jessica Van Egren is a health reporter is a health reporter with the journal Sentinel. Sunday Unlimited News Time is 1.30. ABC News is next.